We have rejoiced, we have given you thanks already for the good that you've done in the death and resurrection of your Son. And we continue to celebrate that great work and the benefit that it's brought to our lives. Thank you for being with us this morning. Thank you for being with us at all times. You love us and we revel and rest in your love. We ask now as we open your word together that you would speak to us as your children, bring comfort to us, bring encouragement, bring conviction where needed. We pray that your word would be used by your spirit this morning to change us, to grow us, to challenge us, and to move us forward along the path of discipleship. So thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for the love that you have for us, that you would speak to us in this way this morning. We commit our time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Our passage this morning... Matthew's gospel has a lot to say about our speech, about our words, about the way we talk. In the middle of Matthew chapter 12, we're going to come face to face with the fact that it is possible to talk badly about Jesus. In fact, we're going to learn that a certain way of talking about Jesus is considered blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Jesus says that God will not forgive this way of talking about Jesus. Ever. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is an uncomfortable topic. Most folks label it the unforgivable or unpardonable sin, and that idea makes us nervous. Some live with fear that they may have committed it, thus putting themselves outside the reach of God's mercy and forgiveness. I hope to address this concern today, but this passage has some wonderfully encouraging things to say as well. My aim this morning is to help us see Jesus more clearly and hear his words in this passage more clearly so that we might speak well of him. This passage does have a warning accent to it, and I don't want to mute that. But my hope is that you'll see the unique love and power of Jesus standing behind this hard warning. We begin where we ended last week, Matthew chapter 12, verse 14. We learned that the Pharisees began plotting against Jesus, conspiring how they might murder him. Beginning in verse 15, we see how Jesus initially responds to this, and then the Pharisees will show up again for another confrontation with Jesus. So follow along as we read Matthew chapter 12, verses 14 to 37. I want to get a head start on our passage for this morning, so we'll start in verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. 
A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges." But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person, out of his good treasure, brings forth good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. So, as we begin, we see Jesus' response to the Pharisees plotting. He leaves. He withdraws. He doesn't try to defend himself. He doesn't go on the offensive and point out their wickedness. He doesn't pick a fight with them. He just leaves. But as he leaves, crowds follow with sick people, and he heals them. But he orders those he heals and everybody else who's watching not to make him known. So in Jesus' withdrawal from conflict with the Pharisees and in Jesus' instructing people to keep quiet about his healing ministry to them, Matthew sees the fulfillment of prophecy, particularly a prophecy from Isaiah. He quotes most of Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 4, at length. And this is Matthew's longest Old Testament quotation in the whole gospel. So it would seem that this particular passage from Isaiah is important to Matthew. Jesus is the servant of Yahweh, the servant of the Lord that Isaiah talked about frequently in Isaiah chapters 42 to 53. What do we learn about this servant in these verses? What do we learn about Jesus from these verses? First, we learn that God chose him for this role and that he is well-pleased or delighted with this servant whom he loves. This echoes what the Father said to Jesus when John baptized him in the Jordan River. Remember, 
Matthew 3, 17, as Jesus came up out of the water, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The Father was applying these words from Isaiah 42, 1 to Jesus. Second, we learn that God is going to put his spirit on this servant. Again, this is what we saw at Jesus' baptism. The spirit descended on Jesus like a dove. This implies that the Spirit would be empowering the servant to accomplish his mission. Third, we learn a summary of what that overall mission is. This servant is coming to proclaim justice to the Gentiles so that all nations will hope in him, in his name, as the last phrase of that passage tells us. This servant, Jesus, is going to right all wrongs for all nations, Israel included, so that a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, would be standing before the throne and before the Lamb, Jesus, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb to borrow language from John's description in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. Fourth, we learn how this servant will go about accomplishing his mission. And I think this is really Matthew's focal point as he applies these verses to what Jesus was just doing, withdrawing from conflict with the Pharisees and telling the people who saw and benefited from his miracles not to tell anyone about it. Isaiah said that the servant will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Thus with the Pharisees, he won't pick a fight with them or get into a shouting match with them. And as far as no one hearing his voice in the streets, we're probably meant to see an expectation that people will refuse to listen and respond to the servant's message and ministry. And of course, that is what we see, especially in these middle chapters of Matthew's Gospel, chapters 11 and 12, as opposition and hostility against Jesus rises. The image of not breaking a bruised reed or quenching a smoldering wick is usually suggested to indicate that the servant would be gentle or sensitive toward weak and vulnerable people. And of course, that certainly fits as a description of Jesus. But I'm not sure that fits with what's specifically going on in this passage. Instead, as one writer puts it, it's a poetic picture of a resolute servant who sneaks by unnoticed, accomplishing God's will amid the shadows of opposition. This writer goes on, The unbreaking of bruised reeds and the unquenching of smoldering wicks had less to do with Jesus' compassion for hurting people and more to do with his need for secrecy. He had to bring forth justice, but for a time he had to leave no trace of it. We could say he tiptoes through the reeds, not breaking even the bruised ones, and he creeps circumspectly to prevent his draft from extinguishing candles, even those barely smoldering. His messianic mission had a noteworthy ninja element. 
But at the same time, don't miss the triumphant element of the servant's mission. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will bring justice to victory. And in the name of Jesus, people from all nations will hope. In the face of the rejection and opposition that Jesus was experiencing at this point in the story, Matthew wants to remind his readers that opposition and rejection will not be the last word. Jesus' ninja ministry... Jesus' withdrawing from conflict and moving with stealth will not always be how he behaves. After his withdrawal from the Pharisees, and as they continue to plot against him, we find them popping up yet again to begin calling into question his power. Is he the descendant of David, or is he dependent on the devil? The occasion for this is Jesus casting out a demon. In verse 22, someone has brought a man who could neither see nor speak. He couldn't see the one who could remove his blindness. And he couldn't speak to call out to Jesus for help. And his state was caused by a demon. Matthew only mentions that Jesus healed him and doesn't describe the encounter at all. And this is to focus on the reactions that followed. The crowd saw it and began questioning whether Jesus could be the Messiah the descendant of David, promised in the Old Testament, who would sit on the throne over God's people and over the universe forever and ever. Moreover, David is the only person in the Old Testament period who could possibly be associated with casting out demons. Do you remember how Saul was troubled by evil spirits and how David would come and play his harp for Saul to apparently send away the evil spirits? Thus, the connection between Jesus and David here is strengthened. But Pharisees among the crowd decide that they need to counter this question. Not only do they reject this possible interpretation of who Jesus is, they decide they must go further. Look again at what they say in verse 24. It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. And to this grievous charge, Jesus must respond. The seriousness of this charge cannot simply be ignored. Jesus begins his response in verses 25 to 27 with a bit of logic to expose the Pharisees' nonsense. First, he provides a common-sense observation that everyone should agree with. Civil war results in destruction and defeat, not victory. Whether a nation, a city, or even a home When there is internal conflict, the result will always be damage and failure. Then he applies this directly to what they said. If what they said were true, then it would mean that Satan is fighting against himself. Jesus had just driven a demon out of a person. Jesus had just set a prisoner of Satan free. Why would Satan want that to happen? This is utter nonsense. In verse 27, Jesus continues his logical argumentation. Among the Pharisees were Jewish men known to be exorcists. We see evidence of this in the book of Acts, where we're told about seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva, who were attempting to cast out demons, but failed spectacularly, if you remember the story. But other historical records indicate that both Jews and Gentiles had procedures for attempting to get rid of evil spirits. And sometimes they seem to have been successful. 
Thus, Jesus pushes the question back in the Pharisees' lap. When Jewish exorcists succeed in casting out demons, who empowers them to do that? Who gives them success? Surely, the Pharisees would have to say that God enables them to do that. Thus, their success in casting out demons proves the Pharisees' claim about Jesus wrong. Having proven logically that their claim is nonsense, Jesus turns to explain more fully about who he is. Look again at verse 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Going back to the quotation from Isaiah 42, Jesus suggests that the Holy Spirit is the one who empowers him to cast out demons. And he goes further and asserts that this should be evidence to them that God's kingdom is on their doorstep. Now, at first, this might be confusing because he just affirmed that other Jewish people were casting out demons. Yet their success probably is not an indicator that God's kingdom has arrived. So what's different about Jesus' casting out demons that does, in fact, point to the kingdom's arrival? It seems to be the method of Jesus' exorcisms and the 100% success rate uh, that sets him apart. Jesus depicts himself as bringing God's heavenly kingdom to earth because he himself is the king. And in verse 29, he elaborates on this significance by means of a parable which shows himself to be staging an invasion of Satan's kingdom. Look at the parable again in verse 29. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. This is an allegorical parable where each part represents something in reality. The strong man is Satan. His house is the kingdom of this world. His goods are all the people under his influence, which ultimately amounts to every person on the face of the planet. Jesus views the people he's come to save as prisoners of war. Do you think of people that way? We are all, we were all prisoners of war before Jesus invaded the enemy camp and rescued us. Billions of people remain imprisoned. And Jesus now sends us as his agents to rescue POWs. I think the plundering here not only relates to Jesus casting demons out of people like he did with the blind and mute man earlier in the passage, but also to Jesus rescuing people from the grip of death, from the bondage of Satan that Paul describes in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Maybe you're not quite willing to accept that description of yourself. Maybe you think that you're the master of your own fate. Maybe you see yourself as completely independent and free, and maybe you see no need to change. Pastor Sean O'Donnell tells the truth about you. He writes, There are only two kingdoms and one choice. Stay where you are 
Call it your own kingdom if you like, if that makes you feel better or safer. And think of yourself as Mr. Middle of the Road or Mrs. Broad-Minded, but in reality, you are teeter-tottering on the devil's playground. But Jesus has shown up, and he has proven that he is stronger than the strong man, more powerful than Satan, and he has bound him. Now, this raises the question, when and in what way did Jesus bind Satan? Different answers have been suggested to this question. Some have suggested that Jesus is referring back to his encounter with Satan in the wilderness, described in Matthew chapter 4, where he resisted the devil's temptation and sent him away. In that encounter, Jesus demonstrated his superior power to Satan. And that, that is what binding the strong man refers to in the parable. Others suggest that Jesus overpowers Satan every time he casts out a demon or sets a sinner free from bondage so that the binding occurs repeatedly. Still others suggest that the binding is simply part of the parable and has no reference in reality, though it does imply Jesus' power over Satan. Finally, one other opinion must be mentioned. Some connect this with the binding of Satan referred to in Revelation chapter 20, which occurs in connection with the beginning of the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Jesus on earth. Those who connect these references to binding view the millennium as a figure of speech that refers to the period of time following Jesus' resurrection and ascension. Thus, Jesus bound Satan during his ministry, restraining his power, curtailing his rule over the world. And then, when Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to sit on his throne, Satan's rule and influence continues to be limited until Jesus returns to throw Satan into the lake of fire, finally and eternally. Folks who believe this are often referred to as ah-millennialists or being ah-millennial because they don't believe there will be a future thousand-year reign of Jesus on earth in distinction from this church age. Of these four options, I personally can only eliminate the last one. I see Revelation 20 as describing a period of time that will not begin until Jesus returns. And thus, Satan will be bound in a unique and different way at that time, truly imprisoned and removed completely from this world. Any of the other three ways of viewing Jesus' binding of Satan during his ministry makes sense to me in this context. The point is clear. We should see in Jesus' casting out demons evidence that he is more powerful than Satan that he is invading Satan's kingdom, and that he is actively opposing Satan, not in any way in league with him, the way the Pharisees had so blasphemously concluded. Jesus adds a statement in verse 30 that makes it clear that the Pharisees were on the wrong side in this great conflict. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus depicts himself here as the great shepherd of Israel who is gathering his sheep out of the clutches of the evil wolves. The Pharisees ought to join Jesus in his work of gathering sheep the way Jesus' disciples have joined him. But instead, they remain hardened and opposed to Jesus' great work. People these days are suspicious of absolutes. 
This is reflected in a memorable Star Wars quotation. If you haven't seen Star Wars Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith, here's a spoiler alert. Anakin Skywalker turns to the dark side and becomes Darth Vader in that movie. As his former best friend and mentor attempts to reason with him, summoning him to return to the light, Anakin gives what could pass as a good paraphrase of what Jesus says here. If you're not with me, then you're my enemy. His friend, Obi-Wan Kenobi, replies, Only a Sith deals in absolutes. This is a reflection of our culture. Don't miss the implied message in a bit of science fiction at the box office. Absolutes are evil. Anyone who says there is absolute truth must be evil. Thus, the good guys in the Star Wars universe, and really we should say it's the Hollywood writers of these films, are on the side of the Pharisees here. Jesus claims absolutely that there is no neutrality when it comes to him. You are either on his side or you are his enemy. Don't buy the postmodern lie that is so prevalent in our culture today that absolutes are evil. And those who deal in absolutes must be rejected and opposed. You will find yourself opposing God to your everlasting harm. Well, Jesus then turns to warn the people of aligning with the Pharisees' way of thinking. I think verses 31 and 32 are addressed to the crowds, even as they talk about and describe the words and actions of the Pharisees. This is certainly the most difficult part of the passage. Let's get the verses in front of us one more time. Verses 31 and 32. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. Now stop there for just a moment. Marinate in that for just a moment. Soak up this gracious word. Every sin, every blasphemy will be forgiven, people. Don't lose sight of the extraordinary reach of God's mercy because of the single exception. There is nothing stingy about Jesus' offer of forgiveness. When you read this passage as a follower of Jesus, let that be where the accent falls. This is the word for you, Christian. This is the assurance that you can hang on to. Jesus promises that every kind of sin and every kind of blasphemy will be forgiven. But, of course... Jesus continues and specifies an exception. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Then in verse 32, he elaborates. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Before we unpack what Jesus means here, I'd like to step aside and say something to you about my methods, for lack of a better word. I want to lay out my heart a little bit towards you this morning. Some of you have told me that you struggle or have a hard time with how precise I tend to be in my theology and in my interpretation of 
particular passages of Scripture. While I don't expect you to, to agree with everything that I say, some of you have felt like it's important to me that you get things just right. You're right. It is important to me that you get things just right. Can I tell you why precision in doctrine matters so much to me? It's because of passages like this, where a wrong understanding or a wrong application of this verse devastates people. Misunderstanding Scripture, misapplying Scripture, taking Scripture out of context often has serious consequences. I view part of my role here as that of a shepherd. And a shepherd should point his flock to healthy grass and away from poisonous plants. I feel a deep, deep affection for all of you. And it's important to me to work very hard for my part to communicate the truth of Scripture as faithfully as I can because I believe that it is vital for your health and growth. Sometimes I make mountains out of molehills. Sometimes I overemphasize things. And sometimes I fail to present a balanced perspective on non-essential ideas and doctrines. Sometimes I get things wrong. I draw the wrong conclusions. One of my professors at Wheaton taught me to consider everything I write as though it were written in soft lead pencil subject to the correction and adjustment of others. Likewise, nothing I say, whether from this pulpit or in conversation, is ever intended to be the last word on any topic. I don't want any of you to be plagued with guilt. And I don't want any of you to be overwhelmed by fear that you might have committed the blasphemy against the Spirit. Maybe none of you have struggled with this specifically, But I bet some of you have wondered at one time or another whether you've done something that puts you outside of the reach of God's forgiveness. Let me assure you, if you're concerned about it, if your conscience is sensitive to your failures and your sins, you definitely have not committed this sin that Jesus says God will never forgive. Commentator Craig Blomberg writes... Professing believers who fear they have committed the unforgivable sin demonstrate a concern for their spiritual welfare, which by definition proves they have not committed it. So what is Jesus talking about? What is blasphemy against the Spirit? Let's get a little help from Mark's gospel. Mark makes explicit what Matthew only implies. Look at Mark 3, 29 and 30 on the screen. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. So Mark gives us two details that can help us here. First, focus on the last bit there from verse 30. Mark says... The reason that Jesus said this was that the Pharisees had been saying that Jesus was in league with the devil. So the Pharisees saying Jesus casts out demons by the authority of Satan is an example of blaspheming against the Spirit. 
Second, Mark tells us something else Jesus said on this occasion, a phrase that Matthew chooses not to mention. He describes blasphemy against the Spirit as an eternal sin. What is an eternal sin? Many folks say that it's a sin that has eternal consequences. But don't all sins have eternal consequences? Paul tells us that the wages of sin, all kinds of sin, any sin, is death, eternal death. So what does Jesus mean by this unique phrase? I think he means that it is a sin that never ends. It is a sin that lasts forever. So this statement made by the Pharisees reflected their settled disposition toward Jesus. In fact, Mark 3.30 says, they were saying, and that tense in Greek may imply that they were saying this repeatedly. And we do know that they had said this kind of thing on one other occasion back in Matthew 9.34. So, What is blaspheming against the Spirit? There have been different interpretations throughout church history. Rather than canvas all of those views, let me quote a few definitions that I think are clarifying and helpful. First, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is the unchanging conviction that Jesus is evil. Thus, this is not an impulsive action, or a statement. It is rather a determined course of godlessness arising from a settled conviction that God's servant, on whom God has put his spirit, is an agent of the very demonic powers Jesus came to defeat. But, since Jesus labels this sin as blasphemy, specifically, we should hold on to the verbal piece of this. So another writer defines it this way, overt, even verbal, repudiation of the presence of God's Spirit in the ministry of Jesus and those whom he has sent. Just reading the Pharisees' statement, we might think that this was an occasion of blasphemy against the Son of Man, which Jesus says will be forgiven. In fact, Jesus probably mentions this, blasphemy directed against himself as the Son of Man, as the absolute worst form of blasphemy that a human might commit that God will still forgive. But his mention of the the Son of Man, that title, that phrase, could indicate that this kind of blasphemy is the result of confusion or misunderstanding of Jesus' identity. The significance of him being the Son of Man was quite veiled during his ministry so that people didn't readily connect him with the exalted Son of Man figure from Daniel chapter 7, though they should have. But the Pharisees were assessing the power behind Jesus' miracles. They irrationally believed his power came from Satan, whereas it truly came from the Spirit of God. Thus, as one other writer puts it quite simply, blaspheming the Spirit is the settled rejection of the Spirit's testimony to Jesus. It is not an episode, but a way of life. You can't accidentally commit blasphemy against the Spirit. You can't commit blasphemy against the Spirit due to ignorance. There is an element of active hostility that produces this kind of blasphemy. 
Pastor O'Donnell sees three components of blasphemy against the Spirit. A knowledge of the light, a hatred of it, and an earnest and persistent effort to put out that light. So, why won't God forgive this particular form of blasphemy? Often this is referred to as the unforgivable sin or unpardonable sin. And I'm not particularly comfortable with that way of putting it. Speaking of it as unforgivable seems to say something negative about God, that he can't forgive this kind of sin. Now, there are good reasons to speak about what God can't do, such as God can't lie, God can't sin. But should we say God can't forgive? In the text, wherever this sin is talked about, Jesus does not speak of it as unforgivable, and so I don't like to speak of it that way. Instead, Jesus describes it as an eternal sin. And he says that the person who speaks this blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven and that he never has forgiveness, neither in this age nor on or after Judgment Day. Why is this the case? Jesus is not merely responding to the words these Pharisees spoke that day. If you glance back at verse 25... In Matthew 12, Matthew tells us that Jesus says all these things to and about the Pharisees because he knew their thoughts. That is to say, Jesus knew what was motivating their words. Jesus could see the heart that produced these words. And he could see that their hearts were so hardened that they would never repent of this assessment of Jesus. And without repentance, there is no forgiveness. So what about today? Can people still commit this sin today? I believe they can and do. However, I agree with Craig Blomberg, who warns that we dare never label anyone as having committed this sin. Only God knows human hearts, and we would often make the wrong guess. There are people around who believe and teach publicly that Jesus is evil. But are we in a position to determine whether, they're, whether they've been exposed to the truth about Jesus and his spirit-empowered life and ministry to a comparable degree to the Pharisees of the first century? Could they still repent from such an awful assessment of Jesus? I don't think we have to, the ability to judge that they can't by God's grace. Jesus could say this definitively about the Pharisees because he knew their thoughts. He could see their heart. Nevertheless, the warning stands and is directed to any of those who would speak poorly of Jesus. Make sure you get this. If you're a follower of Jesus, or even if you have a somewhat positive view of Jesus, or even if you're just not sure what to think about Jesus, then we can say confidently that you have not committed this sin. Therefore, God's grace is being offered to you today. The promise of the beginning of verse 31 is held out to you. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. Now, before we move on and conclude, I'd like to say another word to those of you who might struggle with a tender conscience. Even followers of Jesus blow it big time. And some of us can get weighed down 
carrying feelings of guilt and shame for what we've done. Sometimes this weight is so crushing that we can begin to doubt our salvation. Either we question whether our sin is so gross or so huge that God couldn't forgive us, or probably more often, we see our sin as so ugly that we wonder if it reveals that we don't really have a relationship with Jesus. What should you do when you feel this way? Five things. We'll go through this real fast. Not going to be on the screen. They're not in your notes. Five things when you feel doubtful about your salvation because of your sin. First, know that your struggle with sin, your dislike of it, wrestling with it is an indication that the Spirit is at work in you. Those heart, those whose hearts are hardened, like Pharisees, don't wrestle. They don't struggle. They're not uncomfortable when they sin. Second, look to Jesus again. Look again at Jesus dying on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins and carry away all your guilt. See Jesus coming out of the tomb, having conquered all sin and death. See Jesus sitting on his throne, graciously ruling over the details of your life and interceding on your behalf at this very moment. Learn to preach the gospel to yourself when you struggle with feelings like this. Third, admit your sin. Just own it. Don't make excuses for it. Don't try to cover it up or hide it or explain it away. Just admit it. Fourth, trust the promise of forgiveness for sins to those who confess. 1 John 1.9 is key here, of course. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Believe what Jesus said here in this passage. Every kind of sin and every kind of blasphemy will be forgiven, people. Finally, number five, go love somebody. Biblical counselor Timothy Lane writes, Perhaps you have allowed self-absorption and introspection to isolate you. Move towards people. Love them. Be a blessing. The struggle you're having is an opportunity for you to grow closer to God and to others. Let your guilt drive you to a deeper dependence on the only one who can set you free, your faithful Savior and friend, Jesus. As you learn to depend on Him for forgiveness, you will experience true Christian joy and the freedom to love others. Well, after Jesus talks to the crowd about the Pharisees, he turns again to address the Pharisees directly to indicate that their speaking reveals their hearts. First part of verse 33 can be a bit puzzling, but I think Jesus is basically saying, you Pharisees can see my casting out demons is a good thing, a good fruit. Well, you ought to recognize that I'm a good tree. But your assessment of me, that I'm being empowered by the devil, is bad fruit, which means that you are all bad trees. 
He then repeats John the Baptist's insult addressed to the Pharisees, brood of vipers, offspring of snakes. I wonder if Jesus had Genesis 3 floating in the back of his mind here, the seed of the serpent. In any case, his rhetorical question in the middle of verse 34 indicates that he sees the Pharisees as evil and that they therefore cannot speak good Their blasphemy against the Spirit is merely the overflow of their hearts. Verses 36 and 37 contain another statement of Jesus that sometimes causes his followers a good deal of anxiety. He does seem to turn again to speak to the crowds, but this time I think he's talking to everyone, Pharisees and the rest included. Look again at verse 36. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Now, I don't want to minimize in any way the total accountability that we have before God. We will have to give an account of our lives before the judgment seat of Christ. But there is an open question about the meaning of the Greek word, the ESV, and most Bible translations have translated as careless here. The words spoken by the Pharisees certainly weren't careless. But then again, Jesus could be saying... Something like, if everyone will be held accountable even for their careless, thoughtless words, how much more will they be held accountable for their intentional, evil blasphemies? However, the Greek word typically means something like useless or unprofitable. For example, the word appears in James 2.20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? One Greek dictionary even suggests that it can have a moral connotation, as in not accomplishing good, which would associate this with the evil speech of the Pharisees. So it may be that Jesus is reasserting that the Pharisees will be condemned on Judgment Day. And the evidence for the prosecution, the evidence that brings condemnation, will be their words. Likewise, his followers who speak well of Jesus, will have their words brought out on Judgment Day. Uh, uh, (laughs) But their words will be presented as evidence that supports and confirms and substantiates their justification. Commentator David Turner writes, On Judgment Day, good words that manifest a good heart will vindicate good people. But bad words from a bad heart will condemn bad people. Bad fruit, bad tree. Good fruit, good tree. The Apostle Paul charges us in Ephesians 4.29 to let no corrupting talk come out of our mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. That word corrupting, actually shows up in our passage in verse 33. It's the word for bad fruit. The image is rotten fruit. When we speak rotten words to each other, it's like giving a rotten fruit to someone to eat. It only succeeds in making them sick. It matters how we speak to one another. Let's continue talking about Jesus with each other. And let's seek to speak well of Jesus to each other and to the community around us.
Surely to talk about Jesus with each other is one way that we give grace to each other. Let's use our words to encourage and build up and also to remind each other of what Jesus has done for us. Do you know what else we can do with our words? We can sing with them. So I'd like to invite the music team back up here to sing about Jesus. The words of this song are good words about Jesus. Good things to say and believe and feel the truth of about Jesus. So would you stand and join us in singing about Jesus and to Jesus.